All right, so uh, this is the sixth week we're on this topic of baptism. Um, but before we begin, let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, cry out to you asking for your blessing, asking for your presence here among us. Uh, Lord, we ask that uh, as we look into your word, as we look into uh, this uh, gift, sacrament of baptism, that you would um, engage us, you would uh, show us and teach us uh, and make us wonder. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so this is the sixth week. And, um, and so, uh, you know, we've been going through five weeks, and uh, every week we've been covering new stuff, right? And so it's so much, uh, and there's so much covered, that I kind of want to just pull it all together today, right? Um, and today, uh, especially if you're here for the first time, you may have the sensation of, whoa, this is so fast, you're making jumps and leaps. Uh, and my sort of default response will be, uh, go listen to the other <laughs> lessons, right? Uh, for sort of the fleshing out and back up. Um, but I'm going to try to pull it all together today, okay? And this is kind of a time when you can also ask questions for clarification or, or to engage the material. Um, all right, so let's begin, right? So you can see there's four pages. And so we're going to go relatively quickly uh, through some of the points. But let's begin. Point number one. There are two sets of sacraments in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And uh, what's very, very important here, okay, is that we are operating under the assumption, so I'm going to write this down, under the assumption of continuity. Okay? Um, we're assuming, right, that the Old Testament story and the New Testament story is one continuous story. Right, that the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament um, are connected, that, that, that they're continuous, and that the sacraments in both the Old and New Testament work exactly the same way. And you can kind of see that there is um, a symmetry, right? That you have in the Old Testament um, two sets of sacraments, circumcision and Passover, and then you have in the New Testament two sets of sacraments, baptism and Lord's Supper, and they are basically the exact same thing, so that in circumcision and baptism, you have an initiatory rite, and we'll talk about that. Initiatory rite. Okay? And then Passover and the Lord's Supper, you have essentially a fellowship meal. Okay? Um, and in circumcision and Passover, right, the sacraments are bloody, right? You draw blood because it's pointing forward to the sacrifice of Christ. But in the New Testament sacraments, there's no blood because Christ has shed his blood, right? He's fulfilled uh, the promises. And this is a very, very, very helpful paradigm. Why? Because when it comes to baptism, the New Testament actually says relatively little about baptism. We actually see a lot of passages where it says people are being baptized, right? But the, the New Testament spends relatively little energy and time talking about exactly what is baptism, the meaning the function, how it works. Um, and in the Old Testament, you have voluminous chapters talking about the meaning of circumcision. And so therefore, what we know about circumcision, we can apply to baptism, and it helps to fill out our understanding of baptism. Okay, does that make sense? Um, and now the link between circumcision, um, sorry, the link between Passover and the Lord's Supper is very, very obvious, right? Jesus explicitly makes the link, right? Uh, in his last supper with his disciples, he was eating the Passover, 
And he says, this is what? My bread, this is my blood, this is the Lord's Supper, right? So he transforms the Passover into the Lord's Supper. So that link is very obvious. No, no one contests that link. What about the link between circumcision and baptism? Well, that link uh, is not as explicit. Um, and so we have one verse, but before we read that verse, I want to make the, uh, the point that the link between circumcision and baptism does not rest on that verse. Does that make sense? It rests on this, the assumption of continuity. Okay? So this verse, if the assumption of continuity is true, fits into that paradigm. Right? But it's not, it's not a proof text, I guess, so to speak. All right, so let's read the verse. Colossians chapter 2. Uh, Tom, can I have you read it, please? <clears throat> In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, he raised him from the dead. Yeah, who raised him from the dead. Paul here links circumcision and baptism, right? That they're both pointing to the same thing. What, he, what Paul calls the circumcision of Christ, what he calls putting off the body of the flesh, which is salvation. Um, and there's so much more to be said about the verse, but again, we're, this is a review, so we're moving on. Okay, point number two. Uh, is there any quick questions here uh, about this paradigm that we're looking at? Okay? So there's a continuity of, of sacraments in the Old and New Testament. It's essentially one story, one people. Uh, it functions in the same way. Any quick questions or thoughts? No? Okay. Feel free to interject if the question comes upon you a few seconds later. All right, point number two. There is essential continuity between circumcision and baptism. Okay, it's basically the same point, uh, but there's another verse, okay? Um, and so this link that we're drawing between circumcision and baptism is not only Colossians 2, but maybe the other, sort of speak, proof text, and again, we're not, we don't have proof text here. We're, we're dealing with paradigms. But if there is a proof text, it would be Acts chapter 2, right? Uh, let's read Acts 2. Can I have, um, can I have uh, Marshall read Acts 2? Acts 2. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> for the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Paul, uh, Peter speaks of the promise. What promise is he talking about? We've talked about this, right? What promise is he referring to? For those who've been in class. Yes? The Abrahamic covenant. Yeah, the Abrahamic covenant, exactly. He's referring to the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? Galatians 3.8, right? Paul says that Abraham uh, received the gospel. The gospel was preached to him through this promise in the Abrahamic Covenant. And therefore, right, and, and, and what Peter is saying to all these people who are gathered at Pentecost in Jerusalem is that this promise given to Abraham, right, is for you guys. And how does the Abrahamic Covenant work? The Abrahamic Covenant includes the promise goes to the children, right? That circumcision, right, the sign of the covenant was applied to the children, the, the little boys, inside Abraham's household. Um, and so what we see in Acts chapter 2 then is this paradigm, right? We see that Israel 
and the church are continuous, and that circumcision and baptism flow together, flow into each other. Does that make sense? So this is, this is the paradigm we're dealing with. And Acts chapter 2 shows us, right, that this promise given to Abraham, given to Israel, circumcision, applies now to the church, right? Um, any quick questions on that? No? Okay, let's move on. Point number three. Circumcision was applied to the children of believers. Okay? So therefore, right, um, we see in the story of in Abraham, right, we looked at this in Genesis 17, we're not going to read it, but uh, God says, here's the sign of the covenant, right? Here's a sign, uh, right, of the righteousness that you have in Christ. And that sign is to be applied to all the little children, right? All the little boys in the household. And therefore, okay, therefore, we who are New Testament believers, we apply baptism, the sign of baptism, to the children of believers as well. Okay? Uh, turn to the next page. Point number four. Uh, the children receive the sign of the covenant because their parents act as their representative. Okay. Our initial reaction is what? No, 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 God. <laughs> the little boys should not receive circumcision because they don't have faith. Abraham had faith, right? Abraham believed and was credited to him as righteousness. But Abraham's children, their little boys, his little uh, infant boys, they don't believe. They don't have faith. So it's improper to apply the sign. And uh, we've looked at this, right? The response is that circumcision, and we would say baptism, is not a sign that you believe. It's not a sign of faith. It's a sign of grace. God's grace, right? And the paradigm here is that, um, let me write it here, is that God deals with humanity. Not as individuals. but as families. You say not, not just as individuals? Yeah. yeah, sorry, not just as individuals. Okay, but as families, okay? Um, and so, where, uh, and so the way it works, right, is that here you have the head of the household, right? And the head of the household has faith. Okay? And because he has faith, his decision to believe, okay, acts, counts for his family. So, his children, okay, even though they themselves did not believe, or do not believe, or don't even have the capacity to believe, right? the decision of the head of the household counts for them, right? So that basically the head of the household is the representative of the family. And maybe this violates our sense of individuality, right? We're like, no, everyone should make their own decisions. Uh, I don't care what my dad says. <laughs> I'm my own man, you know. Uh, my family's retarded. I'm my own person, right? But that's not how... Uh, 
God deals with humanity in the Bible. God deals with uh, humanity through families, right? So what the head of the family decides applies to his family. It's a communal culture, not an individualistic culture. Okay? Yeah, and then the child grows up, and maybe he's an adult. He's like, no, I hate you, Dad. I'm going to do my own thing. Then yes. But as long as the child is, you know, this helpless little baby under his father's care, the father makes all the decisions. I don't, you know, Judah can't rebel. I decide everything for Judah right now. He's going to live in West Oakland. <laughs> he's going to get dressed, you know. Actually, Christina's going to dress him in any silly clothes that she wants to be. To decide. Judah has no, no powers, no decisions. Okay. And uh, fundamentally, okay, the question is where do the children of believers belong? Do the children of believers belong here in the world? Are they little pagans? No. They're in the church. And what that means is that the children of believers, we don't, we don't think of them as little pagans, right? We don't say, hey, little pagan. <laughs> um, we treat them, right, as belonging to the church so that. When, as Judah grows up, I'm going to tell Judah, God loves you. And he sent his only son to die for your sins. You know, and I'm going to raise him up as a believer. And, and as he grows in understanding, he's going to believe the gospel. I'm not going to say, you know, to, I'm not going to think of Judah as being outside the church, outside of God's love, but I'm going to think of him and treat him as being on the inside. Um, any quick questions there? Yeah, in fact, wouldn't that be the basis of obedience? You know, Ephesians 6, 1 and 2, you know, the first commandment with a promise, yeah. and obey your children, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Yeah. But the first commandment with, back to Abraham, the pro- a promise. It's not the basis that he is in the covenant. That's the basis of his obedience to begin with. Exactly, right. So we're not asking him to convert. We're asking him to take hold of what is already his. Um, and we did look at Ephesians 6. Thanks, that's a good comment. Uh, any any other thoughts or questions? Yes. So what if your family was really like failure, right? So you, if, what if your family is a what? Like a pagan. Oh, your family is pagan. Not believers, or they're just yeah, fail until a certain time. So like, if your if it's like a family based instead of individual based, so you're kind of like destined to be failure until you know <laughs> make your own decisions. <laughs> yeah. So you know, let's imagine a non-Christian couple, and they raise up their little child. Uh, they're going to raise that child as a non-believer, right? Because they don't believe. They're not going to tell their, their little kid the gospel. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it, it's, a, it's a corporate decision. The parents decide for the child. Now, eventually, the child will grow up. And we hope that, you know, he will have, non, he will have Christian friends, and his Christian friend will say, here's the gospel, you know. Uh, you know, you need to repent and believe. And so that way they can come in. But in that sense, they convert into the church. The children of believers don't have to convert. They don't have to cross over from the world into the church. They grow up in the church. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Um, all right, point number five. This is a very, very subtle argument that, that I'm about to make. And so you need to uh, really put on your thinking caps, okay? Uh, listen very carefully, all right? Point number five. The assumption would have been that baptism worked, works the same way circumcision did. The fact that there is no explicit prohibition against infant baptism is equivalent to a direct command to baptize infants. Okay, so let me explain that. 
when, uh, when Paul and Peter and everyone is you know, expounding on the gospel, the first generation of believers were all Jewish, right? And their assumption would have been that baptism works exactly the same way circumcision does, right? That their little children are inside the covenant community, and it's the same way in the church. It, it's, it's exactly the same. If that assumption was wrong, and Paul and Peter and all the apostles would have had to explain to them, no, 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 your children are not here, they're out here, they cannot be baptized, right? It's only for adult believers. Then the Jewish believers would have been like, whoa, 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 are you serious? And there would have been a big controversy, and Peter and Paul would have had to spend enormous energy explaining, you know, again and again. It would have been a big controversy. But do we see even a hint of that controversy in the New Testament? We don't, right? We don't see one even hint of a verse that says, do not baptize infants. And therefore, because there is no prohibition against baptizing infants, that is equivalent to a command to baptize babies. Does that make sense? Under the assumption of continuity, right? Everyone is operating under the assumption of continuity. And if that's not true, then Paul and Peter would have to correct people. But there's no correction, and therefore the assumption of continuity remains true, stands true. Does that make sense? That's a Jeff question. I just have a, a verse that stuck out to me a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's in Acts 21, when um, a bunch of the, you know, a lot of Jews were coming to faith. Yeah. And uh, it said, and when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, "You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have been believed." They are zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, and that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So then, I mean, they're basically telling Paul, make sure that they don't think that you're not including our children in the, you know, in the church still, because that's what people are hearing. And we know that's not true. Sure. Basically, he does exactly what they say. Sure. You know, he's like, oh, you're right. We don't want to let them have that idea. Sure, sure. So. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, any, any questions or any, like, clarifications on this? It's a kind of a subtle argument. Does it make sense? Okay. Let's go on to point number six. Uh, do we actually... Okay. So that's all very theoretical, all very biblical, Right? Do we actually see concrete evidence of this? You know, do we actually see babies being baptized in the New Testament? And I would argue, yes. Uh, point number six, in the household baptisms, we have examples of infant baptism, right? So that we were looking at this, right? We were looking at these five household baptisms of Cornelius, Lydia, the Philippian jailer, Crispus, and Stephanus. And basically, it's following this Old Testament pattern, right? God comes to Abraham and says, you know, you believe, here's the sign not only to you, but also to your household. And we see the exact same paradigm in the New Testament. Uh, and some people might say, ah, 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 but we don't actually see an explicit mention of infants here. We only see the word household. Right? It never says infants. And my response would be, well, that's an unnecessary redundancy. <laughs> right? It, it, it would be unnecessarily redundant for, for you know, Luke, the writer of Acts, to say, Lydia's household was baptized. Oh, and also the infants. You know, that's not how people talk. No one said household, my household and the babies, <laughs> right? They would, they would say my household. And then, you know, if people see babies, they'll be like, oh yeah, he's talking about his babies, right? Um, that's how language works. You know, that's how 
the word household was used in that time period. And we looked at all those passages right in the Old and New Testament where the word household applies to the children, right? When Paul says elders need to be able to govern their household, he's talking about their children, right? Okay. Um, point number seven. Uh, we also see evidence in the early church. The early church universally practiced infant baptism. Right, and we looked at that last week about all those different uh, quotes from the early church fathers. And let me just read to you one from Augustine. Um, the custom of mother church in baptizing infants is certainly not to be scorned, nor is it to be regarded in any way as superfluous, nor is it to be believed that its tradition is anything except apostolic. I think that's a very significant word, so let me write that word down, apostolic. Okay? Apostolic means from the apostles. And I think um, Augustine, and not just Augustine, right, but we look at all these other church fathers, they're saying that they practiced infant baptism because they were taught by the apostles. They're not saying, hey, the apostles, they actually didn't say anything, but you know, it seems right to us to baptize babies, so we're doing it. Or they're not saying, hey, we're doing a new thing. They're saying, they're making the claim, okay? And maybe we can call them liars, but they're saying they got it from the apostles, right? And, you know, we have uh, quotes all the way stretching to the, to the second century. That's 200 years after the time of Christ. And maybe, you know, the argument might be, well, the early church didn't baptize babies. But then at one point, you know, somehow there was some corruption or misunderstanding. And then people started baptizing babies. But then that would mean, right, that the church universally, stretching across thousands of geographic miles, all decided at once to switch over and do a new practice. And I would say that that is historically very, very implausible, <laughs> right? It's very, very unlikely. Uh, it's a stretch. They couldn't send out an email to everybody. <laughs> right, there's no head dude. Maybe the Pope did it. Well, you know, I would argue there wasn't some head dude like that. And there would have been controversy. There would have been a big segment of the church that says, what, are you kidding? No, no, no. You know, so that we would have a historic remnant of people who didn't baptize babies. But we looked, right, all the denominations, all the branches of Christianity that exist today that trace their lineage all the way back to the early period, right? All of them universally practice infant baptism. It's only modern groups that practice uh, only baptizing adult believers, right? It's only 1,500 years after the fact. Um, now, that doesn't mean that that by itself is a reason, you know, but that fits into the general paradigm. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's the end of talking about infant baptism. There's so much more to talk about it, but that's basically the end. You know, I remember someone said to me, Michael, Pastor Michael, uh, you believe in infant baptism? Yes, I do. Um, explain it to me. Can you give it to me in two minutes? <laughs> and I remember saying, uh, <laughs> Can I give you six Sunday school lessons? <laughs> um, and so I've spent an uh, enormous amount of time, I know, uh, talking about this. Perhaps some of you are like, oh my gosh, I got it by lesson three. Um, <laughs> but I've spent an enormous amount of time on it because, okay, I don't want you to think that, you know, what, uh, what I believe is crazy unbiblical. You know, you may disagree. And I, I want to emphasize very, very strongly again that on baptism, it's a secondary issue, okay? If you don't believe in infant baptism, that's perfectly okay. You could be a member. We could have fellowship. You know, if you say, Pastor Michael, I don't want my infant to be baptized, I, my response is, 
that's fine, you know? I believe it's biblical. I'll, I would encourage you. But if you don't want to do it, that's perfectly okay. I'm not going to coerce you or hammer you. Um, uh, but I'm going to, you know, we're going to see that pretty soon. Ju- Baby Judah is going to be baptized. And then, so I want you to understand. So you guys are not thinking, oh my gosh, what's going on here? This is really weird. Um, so at least there's understanding, you know? And so that's a big part of the reason why I spent so much time on this. Any questions on infant baptism before we move on to the next topic? Any clarifications or or puzzlement or protest? I protest. Yes, Sean, are you protesting? No. no. Well, we kind of said the parent decides for the kid, but it, maybe a better word is since God grabs the grown-ups, yeah, He's grabbing. He wants to grab our kids too. The sure. Race. So decide is kind of a Western kind of voluntary word. Kind <laughs> sure. of the word the Bible uses is kind of union. God's he grabs you and whoever's connected to you is caught up. Right. Yeah. When we're grabbed by Jesus, we're caught up with him. Yeah. In the resurrection. Yeah. And, like like the story of Noah, you know? Noah's a righteous man. God saves Noah and his family. Who ends up, you know, not all of them being very righteous, but you know, he saves families. So it's not really Lion King circle life, but it's this web of <laughs> this web of grace. Uh, we're connected to sure. God and each other. Though. Sure. <laughs> um, that's good. That's a good clarification. Any other thoughts or comments? I think it's good to point out too that it's not just the father now, because the scripture is very clear that you know, if if, if there's an unbelieving mom, I mean, a believing mom with an unbelieving husband, sure. her children are made holy or set apart. Sure. Or God's, yes, yes. You know. Yes, yeah, so it's, 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 we're not being sexist. You know, women can be the head of the household. All right. Um, point number eight. Uh, baptism is a sign and seal of grace. So let's read Romans 4. Um, can I have Wilbur read it for us? Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Okay, so uh, baptism is a visible sign. Of an invisible grace, right? Okay? God's grace, you know, it's not like this elixir that's some sort of like plasma flow or something, right? Um, It's invisible, right? But God gives us graciously a visible sign so that we can sort of see and understand, right? It tells us about this grace. And we talked about the symbolism and the meaning behind it. Um, And... uh, and it's not only a sign, right? It's not merely a sign, but it's also a seal. And we talked about this, right? What is a seal? Promise. Wilbur. A promise, yes. A seal is a promise or a pledge. Okay? And so what that means is that um, God is not just giving us information, like a sign. God is giving us, communicating to us grace through this, through this uh, baptism so that uh, we understand God's love, you know. Uh, we we gain assurance of faith. You know, our faith is strengthened. You know, some uh, some people sometimes you might wonder, am I really saved? Does God has God really chosen me? And you can say, I've been baptized. You know, that's a sign. That's a, His pledge, His seal to me. And you can gain assurance from that. When you see your child baptized, you can say, I know my child is in the church. I know God loves my little boy or little girl. And so it communicates grace. Any, any thoughts or questions on that? No? Okay, let's move on. Point number nine. Uh, baptism is an initiatory rite of the church. What that 
which means that baptism and church membership are one and the same. Baptism is only properly administered by the local church. Okay, I kind of threw everything in there, but let me let me uh, let me write this down. All right, an initiatory rite. What's an initiatory rite? What's an initiatory rite? Does anyone remember? Huh? Hazing. Hazing. When you're, when you're entering a frat, yes. <laughs> What's an initiatory rite? A ceremony that you go through to show that you joined. Yeah, it's a ceremony, right? In which you join something. Baptism, okay? We don't want to say it's the hazing to get into church. <laughs> but it's the initiatory rite to enter into the church, right? Um, and therefore, baptism and church membership are one and the same, right? They're not disconnected. Um, and someone, some, so you're, so you know, someone might ask. Oh, so does that mean I have to be baptized every time I join a church? No, no, no. If you're baptized the first time, that's how you enter the church, and then from that point forward, you're sort of transferring your membership. Does that make sense? Right. So you're transferring your membership from church A. You move to the new city to church B. Right. You don't have to be. You don't have to get the initiatory right again and again. Um, and that's why baptism is only properly administered by the church. And we talked about this before. And I remember there was some, like, oh. <laughs> um, if a parachurch does baptism, my question would be, what is that parachurch baptizing that person into? Can you parachurch? Parachurch would be like, you know, Campus Crusade for Christ, or, you know, I don't know, like, university, yeah. Um, if a parachurch baptizes someone, what are they baptizing them into? Into... Into Campus Crusade? <laughs> um, no, they, you know, baptism is a sign for the church. They're entering the church, and therefore it's only properly administered by the church. Does that make sense? Okay, you can't just randomly on your own baptize someone uh, on your own initiative, because then you're divorcing the sign from what it signifies. You know, you're, you're divorcing it from the initiative. It's like you know doing a hazing hazing ritual. But you don't have a frat. <laughs> you know? People are just going to get mad at you. Um, uh, any, any thoughts or comments? I don't know where I'm going. Thanks, wait for that. You know, confusing me. All right. Uh, point number 10. Not everyone who is baptized is saved. Not everyone who is saved is baptized. Very, very important point, okay? Um, and this gets us to the distinction between the visible church and the invisible church, okay? Baptism is a sign of the visible church, okay? And therefore, not everyone who is baptized, right, who is in the visible church, is saved. How do we know that? Well, you know, God said, Jacob, I, uh, Esau I hated, but Jacob I loved, right? Jacob and Esau both received the sign of uh, the covenant. They were both circumcised. Right? But Esau, both of them were inside the visible church. They were both right in the Abrahamic covenant. But Esau showed himself to be an unbeliever and he's excluded from salvation. But Jacob, you know, Jacob believed. Jacob, you know, is saved. So what you have there is not everyone who's bad, just because, you know, someone asked the question, well, does that mean babies are saved, automatically saved? No. <laughs> the sign doesn't save you, right? 
Grace saves you. Baptism is a sign of that salvation. Can you make the sign meaningless? Yes. Esau made his sign meaningless. He was circumcised, but he had a pagan heart. He rejected the gospel. And so that circumcision was meaningless for him. Does that make sense? And Jesus speaks about this in uh, this parable. And we'll read it. I think it's worth reading very, very quickly. Can I have um, Alden read Matthew 13? Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. Yeah, Jesus says, in the kingdom, there's wheat and weeds. Right? There are people who seem like they're Christians. Right? They're baptized. They sit in the pews, they sing the songs, but they don't have faith. You know, they're false Christians. But they look like Christians, right? So they're, they have the sign, but they're not believers. What about this, this category here? People who are saved, but they're not in the church. Um, this is sort of an extreme case, but the example would be the thief on the cross, right? Jesus says, today you're with me in paradise. He was never baptized, right? He, uh, he never joined a local church. And so we will put the thief right here, right? Now, someone would say, you know, um, okay, hey, I could be here. I don't have to be baptized. This is, a, this is an extreme scenario, okay? You know, this isn't what you should be striving for. You know, we saw in the paradigm of, of the New Testament that uh, almost everyone who believes, not almost, everyone who believes was virtually instantaneously baptized. Belief and baptism are like almost the same thing, you know, instantaneous. And so there shouldn't be a long, long gap, you know. And I know that is true, the reality that some people believe the gospel and then they wait years and years and years to be baptized. Uh, but that should not be, you know. Don't, don't say this is the way it should be. The, the true paradigm should be this. This is, the, this is the visible church, okay. And the invisible church is like this, okay. And maybe a tiny little bump, <laughs> And that's the, that's the invisible church that's outside the church. And then this is the, you know, yeah. Uh, any questions or thoughts? Yes. So, in other words, there's exception to the rule. Someone's in prison, someone's, you know, not able. They're, you know, uh, dying in, in a hospital or something like that. So, but you don't want to make a rule out of the exception. Yeah, it's not good you know, to follow the exception. I mean, the exception is the thief on the cross. So, an extremist. He probably still got some of Jesus' blood on him. <laughs> he got the spiritual baptism, yeah. All right, um, point number 11. Um, uh, wait a minute. I'm losing my points here. Okay, point number 11. Why should we baptize infants if there's a possibility that they will leave the church? Someone asked me this, and I would say that this is the exact same problem we have with adults, right? When we baptize an adult believer, is it possible that they will leave the church, right? And the answer is yes. That's a great tragedy, you know? Do we have to wait till we lock solid guarantee that they're a believer? We can't. We don't have, you know, Christian x-ray heart goggles that we put on. And we say, oh, yes, you are a believer, you know? <laughs> um, profession of faith, and then we baptize them. They could leave the church. And for little children, too, they could grow up and they could end up rejecting the gospel. That happens. Great tragedy. But that's, 
you know, the sign is for the visible church, not the invisible. We're baptizing the, these people, not these people. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, I'm sorry if I'm moving too fast, but I have to go on. All right. Um, point number 12, you only need to be baptized once. Even if you leave the church and come back, you do not need to be rebaptized. All right. Someone asked me, uh, okay, so does that mean you have to be baptized again if you become an adult believer? No. Right? We talked about the sign that it symbolizes the washing of sins. Christianity, unlike any other religion, only has one washing. You're only washed once. Christ died for you once and for all. So you don't need to be rebaptized again and again. Even if you leave the church, right, and you spend some time as an unbeliever, but then you come back, you don't have to be rebaptized. Okay. Um, point number thirteen. All right. This is this is new material. Okay. We've never talked about this. But this is very important. Only those who are baptized may partake of the Lord's Supper. It is only for Christians. All right, this is, you know, man, I have so little time to talk about it, but this may uh, be a difficult concept. But let's read Exodus chapter 12. Uh, can I have Wade read it? <clears throat> and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have received after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and, and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. Then, or, I'm sorry, he shall be as, native, as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. Okay. <coughs> What is uh, Exodus 12 teaching us? That you cannot partake of the Passover unless you are circumcised, right? You cannot partake of the Passover unless you are a believer. And what is the sign of a believer? That you have the sign of circumcision or baptism. And therefore, right, the Lord's Supper, which is a meal only for Christians, it's not for unbelievers, it's only for believers. It's only for those who are baptized. Now, some of you might say, but what about these people? You know, those people who are believers, but they don't have the sign. And my uh, response would be, well, if you believe, be baptized. You know, what's holding you back? Um, I think part of it is that we sort of have this kind of individualistic mentality, right? That, oh, you know, I can believe the gospel, but I don't have to be baptized. I can just do my own kind of Lone Ranger thing. And then I decide on my own if I want to take the Lord's Supper. Uh, but the Lord's Supper is a communal meal. It's a corporate experience, okay? So it's not for you to in decide on an individual basis, right? It's participation in a body, Right? And if you look at uh, 1 Corinthians 11, we're not going to read it, but just look at the first verse. Paul says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, he's speaking of the Lord's Supper, when you come together as a church, it's not you decide on your own individually, but when you come together as a body, as a corporate community. Right? And therefore, um, I think you know, it sounds really exclusionary, but it's really just the same thing as the, Passover, I mean, the Lord's Supper is only for believers. Someone will say, I'm a believer. Oh yeah, well, where's your sign? <laughs> you know, can you tell me with your sign that you're a believer? You know, I don't have x-ray goggles. I can't see into your heart. So I, I, I can only see the outward sign, you know? And you say, well, I believe. The sign and belief should be pretty much the same thing. Uh, yes? Yes? 
We're talking about the outward sign of circumcision, though. Yeah, right? Yeah. So, visible church. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. The visible church. We're not talking about the invisible church. So the visible church partakes of the Lord's Supper, not the invisible church. The invisible church is God's business. We have no idea. The visible church is the church's our business. You know? And that means that non-believers will partake of the Lord's Supper, right? Because they're the weeds. But we, we have no idea, you know? I have no idea. I can't see into your hearts. But I'll look at your outward sign and I'll say brother and sister. All right, uh, point number 14, baptism is a ceremonial washing, therefore the amount of water is insignificant. Right? We actually spent a whole lesson on this, right? It's a ceremonial washing. It's not real washing, you know? You don't have to jump into the tub, grab soap and a loofah, and scrub up and make sure all the dirt comes off. Even a little bit of water is sufficient to carry the meaning, right? And so it doesn't have to be huge amounts of water like in a river, uh, it could be a little cup of water and sprinkled. And in fact, right, if you look at ceremonial washings in the Old Testament, sprinkling is the mode that is spoken of, right? You don't actually see immersion or other modes. You see sprinkling. And so just to read one verse, Ezekiel 36.25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. Uh, that's not to say that immersion is wrong or that there's one right mode. The point is the mode doesn't matter. The point is the medium. You need water, right? And if there's water, that's baptism. It, it doesn't matter how you apply the water. Uh, okay, any questions here? I'm really sorry that I was like so fast. Some of you are saying, okay, I tuned out after point five. <laughs> I hope that wasn't the case. Any, clarific any clarification questions or any thoughts or comments? I welcome them, yes. I see the unbelief, we talked about the unbelief of Esau, made it meaningless. But since baptism is God's communication, yeah. it can never be meaningless. It just means it becomes a curse to that person, not a blessing. Yeah. It's always saying something, and it's always true. Because of what sure. Doing. The salvific yeah. meaning is, is rendered mute. Yeah. Thanks, that's a good point. Any questions? No? Alden, no? <laughs> um, okay, so uh, I have a little booklet here. Why do we baptize infants? Written by Brian Chapel. Uh, when I read through it, I thought, wow, this is excellent. The uh, best, very, very short booklet that I've ever read on infant baptism. If you're interested and would like a booklet form to kind of look at it on your own, um, here it is. It's free. You don't have to pay for it. It's on the church. Um, I have 10 copies. So there's more than 10 people here. But feel free because I'm sure there are people who are not going to pick it up. So I, I welcome you guys to pick one copy up, um, and you know that'll it'll help to explain and flesh it out maybe a little more. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we pray we pray, Lord, uh, that uh, this beautiful sign and seal of uh, the covenant that we have, which is the baptism, that we would not despise it, uh, that we would uh, take hold of it. Uh, and that it would speak to us, that uh, it would show us your amazing love. You don't ask us to be clean on our own account, but you clean us because of Jesus' sake. And it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And we pray that that gospel message would impact our hearts, and it would melt our, our pride and our autonomy, 
and it would make us love you and love each other as we're knit together, one spirit, one baptism. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.